Well, good morning. It's great to be with y'all this morning. Uh, someone said in the hallway to me earlier, you know, if the worship team does their job when the preacher or the speaker gets up to speak, everybody should just be able to go home because they've already done a great job of leading us to a place of where we need to respond. They did a great job this morning, right? Let's give them a hand. However, I'm not letting you guys go right now, so sit back for a second. My name is Grace Marie. I'm the worship arts director here at Mount Horeb, and I am just so grateful to be able to share with you all this morning. You know, if you've been here for, for any of the month of July, we have been in a study on the book of Jonah. And we ended with chapter three last week, and some of you may think, oh, the story's over, it ended so well, we should be able to jump on to a, to a new series today. However, we have some amazing things to unpack in chapter four of Jonah this week as we close out this series. And I'm just excited about the things that God has shown me in this passage and challenged my own heart with, and my prayers that we're all challenged today um, with the things that God wants to show us as we look at how this book ends today. So like I said, my name's Grace Marie, and I have two younger brothers. My brother Michael is two years younger than me, and then my brother Josh is four years younger, younger than me, which means I am the oldest child. Do we have any uh, oldest children in the room today? Yes. So for me, that meant often that I was left in charge of my brothers, and so I particularly remember when I hit probably around middle school, uh, my parents both worked very hard morning till, till evening, and so because of that, uh, up to a certain point, we always had a babysitter, okay? And I remember getting to that age when my parents decided, you know what? You're old enough, you know, you're mature enough. We think we're gonna just let you watch the boys for this particular summer that we had gotten to, okay? And I was like, completely fine with that because basically I was left large and in charge. And if you know me, I have no problem with that. Anybody else like being in charge of something? Oh, nobody. Okay, so I, I really like to be, it was a very natural place for me to be with my brothers. And so I particularly remember when I was probably about 14 years old, it was, it was during the summer, so Michael was 12, Josh was around 10, and we spent our summer doing what typical people did in the 90s, which was basically we rollerbladed around the neighborhood a good bit. Any rollerbladers growing up? Yes, I wish I still could rollerblade, but I can't. I have lost uh, that ability. Um, and then we played a good bit of basketball, and then of course, the main thing we did was eat cereal all day long, and then watch reruns of Saved by the Bell. Where are my 90s kids in there? There we go, there we go. So I particularly remember one afternoon, I was laying on the couch, and I was um, probably eating some Captain Crunch on my like fifth bowl, and watching some good old Saved by the Bell reruns. My brother Josh, who, who was the youngest of us three, um, was probably in the back taking apart a TV and putting it back together. I'm not kidding, this is how he spent his time. He's way smarter than I am. And then my brother Michael, uh, this particular day, I remember looking out, and he was just kinda hanging out in the backyard, and then uh, I see his best friend from the neighborhood walk over and uh, they're standing in the backyard. They look really suspicious. They kind of say some things to each other, look around, and then they make their way into the woods behind our house. So being the older sister and caring about them and being in charge that I am, I definitely took note of this, and I was like, I don't know what is going on, but something is going on. So I decided not to go explore it for the day, um, but I did say, I'm gonna wait to see if this happens tomorrow. So the next day comes around, and I remember it happened again. I, we, my, the phone rang, and my brother, Michael, answers, and then he tells his friend, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be out there in a minute. 
And so a couple minutes later, I see him go in the, in the backyard. They meet, they suspiciously look around, they talk, and then they make their way. Well, this time I decide I'm gonna follow them. I'm gonna follow them into the woods. I wanna know what is going on. And so I follow them into the woods and I hide behind a tree as I'm following them through. And I'm like, what is going on? They found their way, they got to a spot, they stopped, they dug up a box that they had buried and then they opened it and out they pulled a pack of cigarettes. Now, first of all, I wanna apologize, apologize to my parents who are probably hearing this story for the first time. I promise I was a good babysitter. <laughs> But I remember in that moment when I saw that, I was like, oh, they are so busted. Now, there was everything inside of me that wanted to just bust out behind the tree right then and just be like, oh, I got you guys. You're, you're, you're in so much trouble. You know mom and dad would be so mad about this. But I didn't. I was like, this is too good. I've got to hold off and I've got to really get them when it counts. And so they, you know, they light their cigarette, they puff like maybe two or three puffs each, they put it back, they put it back in the box, they bury it in the ground and they head back to the house. So I decide the next day, I have a plan to really catch them and catch them good. Same thing happens again, the phone call comes and as Michael made his way waiting, I had gone before him and gone out to the woods. Right time the phone call came, I was like, I gotta go. I went to the woods, I found the spot, I buried up the box, I took the cigarettes out, I held on to them and I held, I mean, I stood behind a tree that was very close by. A couple minutes later, they make their way into the woods, looking nervous, looking suspicious, looking, looking along. They come to the spot, they dig up the box, they open the box, and when they open it, and nothing is in it, horror came across her face and I stepped from behind the tree and said, looking for these boys? <laughs> and in that, dad, I'm sorry. <laughs> and in that moment, absolute terror came over their faces because they knew they were in so much trouble. What proceeded to happen was I made them come back into the house, take the cigarettes, tear them up, put them in the toilet, flush it while they were both crying so hard that I would promise I would never tell mom and dad as long as I said they would never smoke a cigarette ever again. Now, if you have a sibling, you know what it's like to catch them doing something bad, right? Especially when you're growing up. When you catch somebody doing something, especially your brother or sister, you're like, oh, I got dirt on you. I've got dirt on you. And I remember many times I would say to my brother Michael, hey, hey if you don't do that, I'm telling mom about that time that you dot, dot, dot. But then the problem was he also could look back at me, then I'm telling her about the time you did that. And all of a sudden we both became suspiciously quiet because we knew that we had dirt on each other, that we had been keeping score, and we had things that we could truly get each other in trouble for. You see, deep down, if we're honest, there's something in our human nature, in our fallen nature, that we love about seeing people get busted. There's something we love about seeing somebody fail and mess up, especially if there's somebody who has wronged us in any way, especially if we consider that person our enemy. We love to keep score, and we love to see the ways that they don't add up, they don't make the cut. And so this morning, as we unpack this final chapter in the book of Jonah, we're gonna discover a bit of that that is in his heart as we look and see what God wants to say to us today. See, if you, if you haven't been with us or if you don't know anything about the book of Jonah, basically, here's a quick recap. 
God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to these people, the Ninevites, and I want you to share my message with them. Jonah says, no way. Actually, I'm gonna go the opposite direction. And so he runs away from the Lord. He gets uh, a, good, a good ways, but then he comes to a stop because he ends up getting on a boat. And when he's on the boat, a horrible storm ends up coming. The sailors end up finding out this guy's running from his God, and this is the consequence of all that. We don't want anything to do with that. And so through a series of events, they decide he's going overboard. So when he goes overboard, it says that he was swallowed by a great fish. Now, when he's in the, the belly of the fish, it says three days and three nights. And then what it says is at some point he decides to pray to the Lord because like, this isn't working out so good for him, is it? Okay, this isn't, this isn't great, running from the Lord, not doing what he asked me to do. So, okay, I'm praying to the Lord. It says the great fish, spit him back up onto dry land. God comes again to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to share my message with these people, the Ninevites. This time Jonah says, okay, I'll do it. He ends up going, he ends up going into the city. He shares with them that in 40 days, this place is gonna be destroyed. And guess what? Through a crazy turn of events, it says 120,000 plus people Turn from their evil ways back to the Lord. And this is what the verse says. Let's not miss this. This is chapter three, verse 10. This is where we ended last week. It says, when God saw what they had done, how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. I mean, this is mission accomplished. You would think that Jonah is excited about this. This is exactly what, what I came for. This is amazing. In fact, he's probably gonna go home with a little pep in his step and he's probably gonna get there and he's probably gonna be asked to share his testimony in the temple this coming week. He's probably gonna have this incredible you know, conversion story shared on a missions moment or a missions magazine. It's definitely gonna go viral. This is a, definitely a million hit type of story this is the story of Jonah, how powerful. And he probably would say something like, you know, my heart was really hard and I ran, but God chased after me and look what he did. He used me to reach all of these people. You would think that's where the story would take us. But it's actually not at all where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter four. Let's read together and turn with me. Jonah four, verse one through three, it says this. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. This is not the kind of response that you would think you would get if you read through chapter one, two, and three, and as three ends with them turning from their evil ways. So a couple things we find out immediately just from those few verses. The first thing we really see is for the first time we actually see him own the reason why he ran away to Tarshish in the first place. The reason why is because God is merciful and gracious and compassionate. I mean, all the things we all don't like about God, right? Just mercy, grace, unfailing love. It seems kind of crazy, but this is what it says. It says that he is so bitter and angry about that because he knew God was gonna be this kind of God. 
The second thing we see is Jonah never intended or desired for them to truly turn to God. He wanted them to receive judgment. That's what he predicted. And now that it's not happening, he is mad about it. He is angry about it. So when you look at these verses, it's like, well, this doesn't really make sense, does it? Because here's what's true. What we see in the text of the story, we have to know that something else is going on in the context of the story. You see, if you don't know a lot about Assyria, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria of that day was the superpower. And these are the kind of people, they used their power and their position to take advantage of other people. They were known as being evil people, not just to the Jewish people who Jonah was from, but to all the nations around. These were seen as a people who hurt people, who were unjust, who took advantage of the poor and the widow. And these are the kind of people that they are. And so in Jonah's mind, these people are enemies. These people are undeserving. These people don't need the grace of God and they surely don't deserve it. We see that Jonah has been keeping score and he comes before God and he's got a list. Hey God, listen, this whole compassion and grace and mercy thing, I've got a, a million reasons why these people don't deserve this kind of grace and mercy. You see, Jonah's bitterness, bitterness kept him from seeing the blessing. It's a blessing that God has saved these people. He has, they have stopped doing the evil things that they were known for. They put a stop to it. And surely there was rejoicing in the city. He missed it because he was so caught up in his bitterness about how he felt like they didn't deserve it. You know, when I was in probably elementary school, I started uh, playing basketball and I love, love, love basketball, especially growing up middle school and high school. And uh, I played all throughout. I tried out for the, the school team and I played. Here are some, some action shots of me. There I go. Like if I, I said earlier, if I tried to do that now, I would definitely like roll my ankle and I wouldn't be able to make it, okay? But I loved basketball so much when I was that age. And I will never forget what it was like going to try out for the school team for the very first time, okay? I mean, you go, you're, I mean, I was young. I think I tried out probably when I was in seventh grade for the school team, for our, for our JV team. And I mean, it's all kind of nerves, right? You're there, you're like doing your layups, you're doing your free throws, you're doing, uh, you're doing your three points, you're doing all these things. They're, they're timing you the whole time. They're, they're writing down your stats. And everything you're doing, the coaches are off to the side. And you're like, oh man, I missed a layup. That's definitely gonna go on the list. You're doing the best you can. You're driven with my left hand. I'm really strong there. I can do a left hand layup. All these things. Very nerve-wracking. But I'll never forget the feeling of coming to school at the very end of the week and being so full of excitement and joy and just like, oh, I can't, I can't wait to see. And like going down the hallway, going to the locker room, looking up on the sheet of paper that was posted in the locker room and seeing my name there because I had made the basketball team. Now, I also know that there were many people who would come to that moment and they wouldn't see their name on there. And there were probably many people that came and stood there and saw their name and maybe they were shocked that they were there. But here's the thing, imagine with me 
And for those of you who've been in a situation like this where you've tried out for a team, imagine what kind of person would I be in that moment if I was standing beside someone who made the team, they were excited and they looked, and I looked over at them and I was like, no, you are really gonna bring this team down. I mean, in fact, I actually saw some moves that you had out there and they were not good. You actually missed five out of 10 free throws, which is really bad stats. And, and in fact, you just, can't, you just can't be on this team. You don't make it. You do not make this cut. In fact, I need to find the coach. I need to let the coach know that you do not have what it takes because we need people who are at a certain level to bring this team to where it needs to go. I mean, that would make me a terrible person, right? Jonah is in this situation and Jonah is casting that kind of judgment on these people in Nineveh. He's saying, no, I've got plenty of reasons why these people don't need to be a part of God's family. I've got plenty of reasons why these people don't deserve it. Don't make me get out my list because I have a long one. And Jonah has decided that in his mind, he gets to decide who is in and who is out. Jonah thinks he gets to decide who deserves God's love and who is absolutely undeserving of it. Who's redeemable, who's too far gone, who's forgivable, who is unforgivable, who's good enough and who is just written off as absolute failure. It sounds to me like Jonah is trying to be God himself and he's looking at the picture and saying, no, I'm gonna make that call. But if we're honest, if we're honest here this morning, we probably find a bit of that in our own hearts, don't we? Maybe we have that mindset when it comes to someone, maybe the business owner who took advantage of me. Oh yeah, no, they, yeah, too far. Maybe it's a friend that betrayed me. Maybe it's a lover that left me. Maybe it's the relationship that has deeply hurt me. The pastor who has let me down the boss that fired me, the coworker who lied to me, the co-partner who lied about me, and the stranger whose sin is worse than mine. Surely, God's grace can't go there. I mean, surely, God knows what they've done to me. God knows how they've hurt me and my family. Surely, God isn't gonna be compassionate to those people because they're too far gone, they've crossed the line. I've been keeping score and, and it's not looking very good. They don't deserve this grace. Jonah is left a bitter prophet in this moment, completely unable to see what God is doing. Let's pick it up in, in verse four and read through the rest of the, the passage here. It says that the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and he made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. 
Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. So at first, Jonah's inside of the city, really mad and really bitter that these people have received the blessing of God and they've been spared, they've received life. Now we see Jonah setting up a tent outside of the city walls. I mean, he's like, I'm not going home. I'm not just gonna let this thing go. I'm gonna make a little shelter. I'm camping out because I wanna see what's gonna happen to these people. Hopefully God's gonna change his mind. Hopefully God's gonna come to his senses and realize that my list of reasons why they don't make the cut are gonna convince him that these people do not deserve to be spared and he is there for it. He is waiting to the point that it says he built himself a shelter. Okay, he ain't planning on going nowhere. He is camped out, y'all. And it says that God arranged for a leafy plant to grow. Most likely the word that's used here would be a type of vine, something that we would refer to today as a gourd that would have grown along this shelter of his and provided shelter. Some teachers call this the gourd from the Lord. Everybody say that with me. The gourd from the Lord, that's right. This gourd from the Lord is protecting him, but here's the problem. The Lord also arranged for a worm to come and to eat the stem of it. It says the plant then dies, and now Jonah is even worse off than he was in the first place. Bitter, angry. What is going on? Because I believe Jonah's perspective kept him from knowing his purpose. Jonah's perspective about who God was and how God works in the world kept him from knowing his own purpose. He could have been out doing other things to further God's work. He could have gone home and spread this message. He could have gone to another city maybe God would have called him to, but no, he is in his shelter sitting outside of the city waiting for God to change his mind because he wants it to happen. His purpose is completely derailed. Before we get too judgmental of Jonah, I mean, we do this, and it may not be us setting up shelter outside of somebody's neighborhood, but we definitely will ask around friends that still know these people or look through their Facebook feed or their social media handles, and we want to see, oh, we hope they're not happy. We hope something bad. We hope they're just miserable. They made me miserable. They did something to hurt me. I'm just, I'm hoping they get what comes to them and what they actually deserve. The last uh, few verses says this in the book. It says, uh, verses 9 through 11, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? I don't want us to miss this. God is making quite the point to Jonah. And the first few times I read through this, I'm like, what's the deal with the plant? Like, the plant came, the plant died. What's the deal with it? What I realized that while Jonah is sitting under his little shelter outside of the city walls of Nineveh, there's a dead leafy plant, there's a worm with a full stomach, and Jonah with a heart consumed with anger over God's compassion. 
You see, God is saying to Jonah, you care so much about this plant. You had nothing to do with the plant even living or dying. You're so, you're so concerned about this. I am the God of all things. I am the creator of everything. How can I not care about these people in this great city? You see, Jonah, you care about the plant. I'm a God who cares about people. I'm a God who cares about people. God says there's over 120,000 people there and innocent animals for all the animal lovers in the house say, amen, all dogs go to heaven. Should I not care for them? And then the book ends. Let's pray. The book ends. There's no tidy wrap up. There's no clear conclusion. There's no happily ever after. There's no change of heart from Jonah. Everybody in the story from the beginning to, this, to the end has a change of heart except for who? Jonah. The book just ends with a question from God, which leads me to think that this story really isn't so much about Jonah, is it? What is God trying to say to Jonah? Here's a question. What was God trying to say to the Jewish people, the original hearers of the story, first probably orally and then in written form? What was God trying to say to these people in reading and hearing this story about Jonah? What is God trying to say to us today? You see, there's something back in verse two that I don't want us to miss. Because I think if we miss this, we miss the heart of what God is trying to say about the kind of God that he is. I wanna back up and I wanna read it. It's in verse two and it says this. It says, I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing Love. You see that word that's used there for mercy and compassion is actually only one word in the Hebrew and it describes the word compassion. It says it is the word raham. Everybody say that with me, raham. There you go, maybe you remember that. It says it means this, to love deeply, have mercy, have tender affection and compassion for. You hear me say that and you're like, Gershmi, I've heard, I know what the word compassion means. That's exactly what we think the word compassion means, but don't miss this. It's actually directly tied to another Hebrew word, very close, but this Hebrew word is rehem. And this word actually means womb, as in a mother's womb. You see, this ties this Hebrew word for compassion back to the kind of care and intent that a mother has when she's preparing to bring new life into the world. Love for a child while the baby is in the womb. Now, when Pastor Jeff and I were sharing notes earlier this week, I was telling him about, I was telling him about some of the things I'd studied with us. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And he's like, oh, no, I, I can't share about that, about a womb. I'm not a woman. I've never had a baby. I said, well, Pastor Jeff, I've never had a baby either, but I still feel like I could share about it. And he was like, no, 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 I, I just, I feel, I feel weird. At least, you, at least you have a womb. And I'm like, how about let's agree to this. We both came from a womb, amen? Okay, <laughs> let's make the connection. 
Because you see, even though I've never had a baby, many of you out there have, and I've had many, many friends who have had children. And here's something that I do know about mothers, that they put an incredible amount of care, concern, and nurturing that is constantly going towards the baby while it's still in the womb. Decisions about what to eat, what not to eat, how far we can travel from the doctor, how far not to travel, what we're gonna, how we're gonna exercise, there's so many questions, there's so many decisions that this mother is running through her mind constantly because her ultimate concern, do not miss this, her ultimate concern is that she birthed new life into the world. So she makes the kind of decisions that she believes invests in the potential for new life to be born. You see, God is being accurately described by Jonah in this verse, even though he's saying it out of anger, and even though he's saying it out of frustration, he is accurately describing God as a compassionate God. The kind of God that extends this kind of compassion to someone is to figuratively carry them in the womb, making decisions that are gonna nurture and bring life. Because our God is a God who is all about birthing something new into the world. He is a God who makes all things new. Amen? And I believe God is saying to Jonah, I believe God is saying to us, I believe God was saying to the Jewish people, I am a compassionate God because I'm about doing something new in the world and my compassion is available to all people. And for those who turn to me, I pour out full grace and mercy. Full grace and mercy. Here's the crazy thing. Jonah's angry and frustrated. Here's the crazy thing. This is the same kind of compassion that Jonah has received throughout the whole story. It's the same kind of compassion he's received throughout the whole story while he's been running from God, while he was in the, the belly of a fish, while he has been angry and frustrated and God still provided for him. He has been receiving this compassion, but he has forgotten it's the same kind of compassion that the Jewish people, Israel, where Jonah is coming from, have also received throughout their entire history, but they have forgotten. And I think too often we sit in the walls of a church and we think we have come to a certain place and that we're the religious ones and maybe we're the ones who also have forgotten the compassion of God in our own lives. You see, God's reminding all of us from this book and from this story that it's, it's not about you totally. It's about all people, that God is doing something in the world. And if we forget and if we get all snug in here and we forget that there are people who need to know the grace and mercy of God, but we refuse to show them the compassion that they need to see, they may not know it and they may not hear it, but God is a God for all people and he invites us to turn to him to receive it. Um, I, it's been probably three weeks or so, maybe four weeks, and I ended up um, getting invited to one of my high school teachers' 
retirement parties, which made me want to feel very old that I was invited to a retirement party for one of my high school teachers. Um, but the second thing it did to me, whenever I heard there was going to be this party, her family said, hey, we want you to send a video clip in and we want you to share a little bit about um, what she meant in your life while you were in school. And so um, just a little backstory is when I was, I didn't become a believer until I was late high school, so the very end of my junior year of high school. And so this particular teacher, along with several others, truly invested in my life. I mean, they showed me an incredible amount of compassion, grace, and mercy um, when I feel like other people at the school were like ready for me to move on and I was causing lots of trouble. They were like very gracious. They would come alongside of me. They would invest in my life. They would share um, the ways they felt like God could work in my life, but I didn't want anything to do with it. So um, a few weeks ago when I heard about this party, I remember I was like, I'm gonna go read all of my high school yearbooks. So does anybody keep all their yearbooks? Kids, this is a yearbook. <laughs> I don't know if y'all still do. It's also in black and white, which shows you how old it is. 1998, this was 21 years ago. I was in 10th grade, please don't do the math or I might cry. But I got this book out, I read through everything, um, through all, everything that was written in my, in my yearbook um, for 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade years a few weeks ago. And I came across this, this is about a year before I gave my life to the Lord. And this is what she says to me at the end of this year. It starts with, well, 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 what can I say? Which tells you the kind of year it had been for me. It looks like everybody else has already said it. I've enjoyed getting to know you better this year. You have a lot of potential that the Lord could use if you would let him. You're a natural born leader, search your heart and ask him to use you for his service. You see, when I read that word potential, it stopped me in my tracks because it reminded me what it's like to have somebody to believe in you when no one else really around you in a certain situation was believing in you. It reminded me to be in a situation that even though what others could look at and think like, oh, we're writing her off, she's just a troublemaker, she makes her school look bad. She causes a lot of trouble in class. She looked at me and had compassion. She had care, she had concern, she had love, and she was honest with me because that's the kind of compassion that sees the potential for new life, compassion that speaks to somebody's potential. You see, this is the kind of God that we have. And for some of you, that doesn't sit great with you this morning because you think there are people in your life who don't deserve that kind of compassion. Here's what I do know. I'm glad that somebody didn't completely write me off. I'm glad that someone looked at me and had the kind of compassion that we see modeled in the life of Jesus. Because you know what it says in Matthew 9, 36? Let's look at this together. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is looking out over the crowds of people, the crowd of people that's filled with his enemies, that's filled with people that are gonna betray him, that's filled with people who are faithful followers of him. All kind of people, filled with people who, are, who have failed and he knows all of it. Filled with people who are religious and think they have never messed up a day in their life. It says that he saw the crowd and he was moved with compassion. And this word compassion ties back 
somewhat similarly to the word here in Jonah 4.2, but this word in the Greek takes it a step further and it says, this is the kind of care and concern that moves somebody to action. Jesus saw the crowd and he was moved to action and his action was self-sacrificial love. The kind of love that says, hey, I see you for who you are and I'm not keeping score. I see all that's gone on, I see the, all that's gonna happen and I'm the kind of God who's gonna stand in your place and I'm gonna lay down my own life so you can have what new life so that you can experience new life, so that you can be born again, because I believe God is saying through this story, this is the kind of God that I am. I know you're the kind of people that wanna write people off, but this is the kind of God that I am. I am a God of compassion, and it's available for all people. Here's the thing. One of our values here at Mount Horp is people matter. And we try to say that a good bit, it's a, it's a great reminder. It's easy to say it, and it's easy not to live that though, isn't it? But people matter, and people matter to God. All people matter to God. If we could see people for who they are, and if we could learn to be the people who extend the grace and compassion to other people, what a different world it would be. I believe that the ultimate expression of God's compassion is Jesus. The story in Jonah was just, just a piece of it. It was just a piece, it was just a hint to what was to come, but the ultimate expression of this incredible God and his compassion is in Jesus. And I wonder how many of you here this morning hear that and you think, I don't deserve that. You can't even think about pouring out grace, love, and compassion on a crowd of people, but I, I say to you, maybe you need to just embrace that God deeply loves every one of you. Maybe you just need to say, I am deeply loved. That God wants to do something new in everybody's life. And I believe he's here this morning and I believe he's looking out over the crowd at all of us and he sees every bit of who we are and he has compassion and he invites us to continue to turn towards him and receive the grace and mercy of God. You know, as we close this morning, the band is, is gonna come out and, and we're gonna lead you guys in, in a song. And what I love about this song, we introduced this at the beginning of the series because I wanted us to end the series on this. Is It, it says this, it's the very first word is people. People come together, strange as neighbors, our blood as one. Children of generations of every nation of kingdom come. God's invitation is to all people to be a, bar, a part of this thing. And that Jesus is our ultimate hope. He is our redemption. And that's the cry of this song. So in this moment, I want you to stand. Just close your eyes just for a moment. Let's not rush out of it. 
Because I don't want us us to miss the end of this, the celebration that we can have over what God calls us into and the hope that we have in Jesus. I want us to declare it together. May our heart and may our mind be open once again to remember the compassion that God has had on us as we sing this out this morning. Let's lift our voice.